Well, good morning. It is good to be able to be here with you. Those were abundantly kind words that Josh shared. Um, if there is any good or help that I have brought to the kingdom of God, it is because of the grace of God. And uh, perhaps this morning, uh, His Spirit and uh, by His grace and power, um, He may minister to all of us through His Word. As uh, you were just told, we will be in Obadiah this morning. Um, and so we can start off by, if, you have, if you're using one of the Bibles that are in the backs of the pews, it is on page 1,433. Uh, 1,433, or you can turn there in your Bible or tap and scroll your way there in your phone. Uh, as Josh said, uh, I was, worked with one other couple um, in Clio, and we planted uh, the Exchange Church. We started that work almost six years ago um, in, a, in their living room, and we have gone through many seasons of that church um, growing uh, through conversion and then shrinking down to almost closing and then growing from conversion. And, and now we are meeting, uh, by God's grace, in an elementary school gymnasium, and we have uh, again seen God begin to save uh, people who did not know Him uh, a year ago, two years ago, and um, those also who have just been alienated from the church uh, turning to Him. And so we're thankful for that. Uh, now, uh, this morning, uh, I, I'm just going to tell you, be very honest with you, when uh, Josh and I were talking about this, and he told me, uh, we're going to do this, let's do this swap, and I'm like, it's great, and, and this is a great idea, and I said, what, what, what would you like for me to preach on? And he said, racism. I was waiting for him to laugh and then say, actually this topic, because as he noted, it is a very charged topic right now. And, and I'm going to tell you the same thing that I told him every time that I have taught on this at the exchange, someone has left the church every time. So let me just encourage you on the front end, don't do that. Um, I, uh, you can talk to, if you have questions, you can talk to me afterwards, or you can talk to uh, Josh as your pastor about questions you have. Do that for leaving. It's important, um, but a little disclaimer there. So what we're going to do, um, I believe that uh, reading the Scripture is uh, powerful, uh, as it is the Word of God given to us uh, without error and with the divine authority of our Creator God. And so I'm going to read Obadiah for us, and then we're going to jump into uh, this uh, and look at how Obadiah speaks directly to a specific issue of race relations within the church, particularly in the United States. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. 
All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Eden and Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so shall the nations drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though it had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possession. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. And the house of Esau, stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivors for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Zarephath shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Father, uh, we are turning our attention to a scripture that it is very easy for us to distance ourselves from because it happened a long time ago. But I pray that by your mercy, working through the power of your Spirit, that we would see and understand that your word spoken to the Edomites speaks to us because your word is eternal. Father, I pray that by the power of Your Spirit that You would change the hearts of Your people to be comforters, to be sympathetic, to be empathetic, to love our black brothers and sisters, our minority brothers and sisters who suffer affliction because they are not the majority, because they do not hold the same type of power that we do because of the color of our skin. I pray that you would give us the humility to hear your word. Amen. I'm going to begin with an assumption 
an observation, and a historical reality. These are going to set the groundwork for looking at how this text applies particularly to the white church in the United States. My assumption is that white privilege exists. Meaning that if you are particularly white, middle class, and an American citizen, you are in a constant state of experiencing white privilege. That is my assumption. I'll explain that a little bit more in my observation. If we look at the economic makeup of the United States, African Americans have the highest poverty rate in the United States at 27.4% of African Americans are below the poverty rate. That's followed by Hispanics at 26.6%. That is over one quarter of all who are black or of brown colored skin in the United States of America are below the poverty rate. While at the same time, whites are less than 10% under the poverty rate. Second observation here that goes along with this is that when you look at our representation in the Senate, we see that out of 100 senators, six are of black or Hispanic, Latino background. At only 6%, while minority ethnicities make up roughly 20% of our citizens. There is overrepresentation in poverty and underrepresentation in our Senate. And then of the last 44 presidents, only one has been an ethnic minority. And our current president has seen fit to adopt belligerent and racially demeaning speech patterns. I do not say this to make an oughtness about statement about politics. I do not particularly care in this moment about your political leanings, but what I want you to observe is the state of racial relationship in a power structure around us. And from these observations, I can say that it is logical, the conclusion to this, that for me, as a 35-year-old, white, middle-class, six-foot-four male, that I am one of the most powerful, wealthy, privileged people in the world. And if you are white, middle-class American, you are one of the most wealthy, privileged, powerful people in the world. Now, I want to set this within historical reality. You may have heard the phrase, the black church. The black church refers to the most segregated hour, to some degree, in the United States. We recently had a black church join us for a morning worship service, and in that worship service, I talked with the pastor from this church, and he said, I've always been confused because I go to restaurants and I eat with white people. I go to work, and I work with white people. I go to the movies, and I go to movies with white people. But when I go to church, we don't go to church with white people, and white people don't go to church with us. But if what we read from Ephesians 2 a few minutes ago, that should not be because of all people, the the gospel ought to have broken down the dividing wall. 
But here's what happened. Following the abolition of slavery, the white individuals that had taken their slaves to church and their slaves had believed the gospel, trusted Christ, those white individuals no longer welcomed their slaves who were now freed into the gathering of the church and pressed them out of the church, forcing those of African descent to begin to form their own churches that were under-resourced and under-educated. And so the divide between the fact that we sit here full of a room of Caucasians is the result of brokenness of slavery and racism in our history. When we come to Obadiah, and as we come to Obadiah, we see the result of a history of two brothers, Jacob and Esau. God chose Jacob as one of the fathers of his nation, and Esau he did not choose. And what ended up happening throughout history, we don't have time to look at the entire history of Jacob and Esau, was that, was that Jacob was established as the nation of Israel. And nearby, the people of Esau became the Edomites and became a neighboring powerful nation. And we can see what they thought of themselves. The Edomites thought of themselves in verses 1 through 4 of Obadiah. As they looked at themselves, they saw themselves as powerful. In verse 3, the pride of their heart had deceived them. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, they saw themselves as powerful and protected. And we ought to take note at this point. Whenever the Scriptures begin to refer to those who are powerful, we ought to look and say, how does that then apply to us as some of the most powerful, privileged, wealthy people in the world? They thought of themselves as powerful and self-protected, living in their lofty dwelling, asking themselves, who will bring me down to the ground? But then, we see that the Lord declared that in the pride of their hearts, they would be brought down. In verses 5-9, through nine, there is a description that takes place. The description that takes place is of the wrath of God coming upon the pride of their hearts. And you, you see that he speaks of the, if, if a thief came, the thief would only take as much as he can carry. But when God's wrath comes, it annihilates those who are powerful and proud in their hearts. If grape gatherers came they would at least drop some grapes on the ground. But in God's judgment, He would completely annihilate all that was. And so what could it have been? What could it possibly have been that Edom had done that would make it so that God's wrath would be so complete that it would destroy all that they had and bring them down from their lofty, powerful position? 
There was judgment for two specific sins. We see these in verses 10 through 14. He says to them, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Now, if you read this, you would see, if, you, if we looked at the history of what was taking place here, you would go, wait, they didn't do any violence. They, didn't, they weren't the ones who conquered Judah, the people of Israel. They didn't come in and, and afflict them. How could they have done violence? Verse 11, he describes what he means by violence. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And the reason that he says they did violence and that they were like one of the oppressors is that when Edom looked on and they saw the Babylonian armies coming in to Jerusalem and destroying the place, Edom just kind of stood back and said, I don't need to do anything. And here's what is shocking about this. What is so shocking about this is that Obadiah is referring to a prophecy in Zephaniah about Judah. Now, if you turn over a couple of pages in your Bible to Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 4, here's God's prophecy against Judah. The people of Israel that are being afflicted by the Babylonians in Obadiah. This is what God says to them in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, yet swear to Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Here's why this is shocking. When Babylon came into Jerusalem to annihilate Jerusalem, it was the fulfillment of God's judgment against Jerusalem, and yet the people of Edom should have still come to the aid of their brother Israel. Even though Israel was justly judged by God. So it was not a proper excuse for Edom to stand over here and go, no, 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 I'm not getting involved because they deserve it. John Calvin offers a helpful summary of this conversation. Edom, he paraphrases them, speaking back to God. Why do you accuse us for violently oppressing our brother? We were not the cause of their destruction. They had a quarrel with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We were just protecting our own interests in the midst of these disturbances. We merely sought peace. That's no crime. And God speaks through Obadiah. It was no wonder that the Assyrians and Babylonians shed the blood of your brothers, for they were enemies. They were foreigners. They were distant people. But you... You were of the same blood. Moreover, even you, who should by the very proximity of your country to theirs, you ought to have helped them, or at least 
sympathetically grieved with them, but you were cruel and made alliances with their enemies and have done nothing to help them. Have you not been as one of their enemies? There is a phrase that I have listened to Christians. I, I'm not talking, I want you to hear, I'm not speaking of the world outside of the church. We're speaking specifically of Christians here. That as incidents like Charlotte happened, as the various shootings of unarmed black men, as our president has spoken racial slurs, as this has happened, I have listened to Christi- white Christians Say things like, well, we need the whole story. We need the other side. Maybe they deserved it. After this last week's statement from our president came out about particular countries being filled with fecal matter, one of the responses from a believer was that, well, perhaps they are. I want you to hear from three of your black brothers. These are pastors. These are men who faithfully lead churches. I want you to hear. One one of these men And I'm recounting these from having listened to them. I sat in the room and listened to these men. Said, I literally have to mentally fight against a lifetime of oppressive, discriminating, prejudiced occurrences to maintain my own humanity and faith. And what is horrifying is when I came to the point of maturity where I said, okay, that's the world. I expect the world to act that way. They don't know any better. And then I turned around and the church treated me the same way. Second pastor. During the week when Philando Castile was shot and killed in Minnesota while wearing his seatbelt. And then two police officers were shot in Dallas. His pastor addressed these issues. He said, I spoke from the doctrine of the image of God, that we all bear the image of God. But here's the difference. People who were silent when I said that Philando Castile was made in the image of God, celebrated when I said that the police officers were made in the image of God. Third pastor. And, and of all these three, listen to this one. This is your brother. This, this is a man that you're going to stand. If you trust Christ, you're going to stand next to Jesus with this guy. Listen, listen well. What you need to understand is that when these shootings happen, my house shuts down. My wife is in tears. 
what are we going to tell our son? Oh, if you, when he said this, tears just streaming down his face. And he looked at us white pastors and he said, what am I going to tell my son? I'm not telling you to stand out in the middle of traffic. I'm asking your heart to be broken with mine. You have no idea how much just a text message blessed my soul when men who looked like me were shot on video. And I don't struggle with them merely dying, but the manner in which people who call themselves my friends respond to their death, it made me feel lonely. And the reason that he said it made me feel lonely is because the majority, the vast majority of his white brothers and sisters, people like me, stood aloof in the day of his suffering, in the day of his affliction. God's response to Edom is swift and it is thorough. He responds with complete annihilation over their pride that excluded them from identifying with their brother. But we have a deeper bond of family with our black brothers and sisters than Edom had with Jacob. If you have been bought by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, you have the divine marker of eternal family upon yourself joining you to your black brothers and sisters who mourn deeply over the condition of the racial situation in the United States. And when in our hearts we respond with, either that doesn't affect me or let me hear the other side of the story before I mourn with them, we are joining with Edom and saying, this doesn't affect me. It's not my business. Maybe they deserved it. And God's response to that is clear. His response to that is that He brings judgment upon that pride to annihilate it, to bring it under just condemnation and judgment. When I was 16 years old, I sat at a table with a World War II veteran. It was a POW He had been hit by a grenade. Um, He was hit by a shell. And he was found in a cave by another unit of uh, U.S. military as he was basically in the cave dying as a uh, POW uh, among the Germans. And this man was my hero. Hands down. My greatest hero. He came home. He had... Six kids, he raised them. He was a faithful father to his children. He led music at the church growing up, and I got to call him Grandpa. And I loved him. And I remember sitting at a dining room table. We would have these, stretch that table out. They had 32 grandkids, and we would just enjoy, and it was, it was wonderful. And I remember him sitting there 
when we had our first African-American president, and this man, that everything that he said was like the Bible to me, and he said, I didn't go to war for a man that looked like that to be my president. That's what I grew up in. And that's what I believed. Now, maybe you didn't. You know, I, I got to hear stories growing up about how my family participated in the Underground Railroad. Just two miles from my house, there's an old broken down building that was owned by my family members 150 years ago, and they used to hide slaves in that basement that were running north. And we would pat ourselves on the back all day long about all that stuff and the way that we loved people that didn't look like us. But at the same time, we could still sit around the dining table and say, we didn't go to war have a president that looked like that. And what I do know about my experience growing up is that it is not uncommon for a white, middle-class Midwesterner to think that way. And what we do is we bring the thinking that way into our churches. And I would ask you, the last time that our president insulted entire countries When was the last time that you mourned with people from those countries who have family members in those countries? When was the last time that when a shooting took place that was televised of an unarmed black man, did you mourn with your black brothers and sisters that felt the affliction of that moment? When was the last time you engaged? If you are like me, You haven't. You hadn't. Now over the last few years, God by His great mercy to me has been bringing me into new relationships and new situations to draw me into repentance. But here's what I want you to hear. If by God's grace you see that you are among the most powerful in the world, that you have been bought by the blood of Jesus and are called to identify with your minority brothers and sisters who suffer affliction and you feel the same conviction that I too felt. Hear of Jesus' righteousness. In John chapter 4, verse 4, John tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And he came to the town of Samaria and he went to a well. And he sat down at this well and a woman came to him This woman was the type of person, because she was a Samaritan, that that the Jews did not affiliate with them. But she was also a woman, which for the Jews at that time, they would also not affiliate with her because of that. But not only that, she slept around a lot. And so they wouldn't associate with her because of that. And Jesus sat down. And in his perfect righteousness, he engaged with her. And he listened to her. And he loved her. But it's not just that we look and see Jesus' perfect righteousness going to someone of a different ethnic twist than He was and loving them well. We find that as I look at that and I say, that does not describe my past. 
My past is one of a man who was in a privileged position and enjoyed it and was racist. I cannot say that I have perfectly followed the example of Jesus. What hope do I have? I have every hope. I have every hope because as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, that by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Paul tells the church in Corinth that for our sake, for Joe Sword's sake, for your sake, the Father, He made Him, Jesus the Son, to be sin. He took my own prejudices, my racisms, my standing aloof, and He put it on Jesus on the cross so that in Him, I might, you might, we might become the righteousness of God. That we may experience forgiveness. That we may be made righteous even though we have stood aloof. Even though we have been prejudiced. He makes us righteous. But He does not just leave us in that state of making us righteous, but then letting us live in that same way. He sends His Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, which means that not only by the Gospel of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross, taking my sin upon Himself and giving me His righteousness, not only does He rescue me, but He then transforms me into His likeness so that I no longer stand aloof, but I engage, that I lay aside my pride and that I use my power and my privilege to identify with my black brothers and sisters and learn to mourn with them and learn to defend them and learn to love them and live with them. But He does not just leave us there. He gives us a hope of future glory where He will perfectly bring us into loving, eternal family with our black and Hispanic Latino Brothers and sisters, we've already read this. Romans chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. John looked, and behold, and you've got to know when the Bible says behold, it's kind of this weird word, and we're like, what, behold? Like, I never say behold, but when he says behold, he means, and I look, and you need to look too. That's, that's a little, it's an exclamation point, like, whoa, I just saw it. And here's what he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Listen to that again. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Your black brothers and sisters who mourn now will stand there in that moment. And by God's grace, you can stand and look at them and say, I mourned with you. 
And now I will rejoice with you, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is where He's taking you. Does the grace of God at work in your life reflect that reality taking place in your life now to take the power and the privilege and the wealth that you have as white Americans to identify with those who historically in our country have been oppressed and have been pleading to no longer be oppressed? Does it reflect what God is doing, what He is intending for all eternity? Or do you struggle in the pride of your heart to say no? Let me call you to repentance. Let me call you to the unity with your brothers and sisters that you will be brought into if you are a believer. And let me warn you, do not, do not miss the warning of Obadiah that if you stand in the pride of your heart, aloof from the suffering of your brothers and sisters, the wrath of God will come heavily and swiftly and completely against that pride. But by His grace, that wrath that I ought to have experienced has been poured out on Jesus. I have three brief practical applications. Repent of the phrase, the other side of the story. Stop meeting the moment of affliction that minorities experience with saying, well, I'm going to withhold judgment. I'm going to withhold identifying with until I hear the rest of the story. And repent of excusing away what is becoming the commonplace racist speech from political officials. Call it what it is. Condemn it for what it is. And turn away from it as those who are called to identify with our brothers and sisters who look different than us. Secondly, these are three charged words and I understand that. And they have not been used perfectly. But there's been a movement that has taken place over the last couple of years in our country called the Black Lives Matters movement. Now there are some things that have happened in that movement that are not good. But there's a reason why that's necessary. Why that concept is necessary. I don't have to tell you that white lives matter. I don't. You know it. What we don't know by our actions is that black lives matter in the same way that white lives matter. And so when you hear of your black brothers and sisters participating in some way in the Black Lives Matter movement, and your response is, what? No. All lives matter. What you're doing in that moment is you're flattening out the power, privilege, and wealth reality disparity that is within our culture and you're flattening it out with all lives matter and so turn away from speech that removes what is within our culture and the oppression that exists and finally seek out your black brothers and sisters if you do not if you cannot tell me right now i have minority brothers and sisters 
who can help me understand this and what's going on, go find them. It is not their responsibility to come find you. It is your responsibility to go to them. Find brothers and sisters from countries that our president presumes to be disgusting. And then listen to them. You will learn a lot. Listen to them. Ask God to give you empathy for them. Learn to mourn with them so that you may have the joy of rejoicing with them.